Heavenly Father, we just come before you recognizing that we're seeing your handiwork in nature, that nature really is a second book that testifies to the truth of the Bible. And we pray that as we continue to look both at true science and science falsely so-called, that you would give us discernment and wisdom so that we can understand your truths and compassionately and yet forcefully, persuasively take your positions at a time when many seem to be saying we should take no position at all. We thank you that we can trust you to continue to guide us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this uh, final presentation, I want to look with you at some other evidences that we find in science to actually have confidence in what the biblical account relates. And uh, I tell you that here that there's seven reasons, at least, that I think we can have confidence in God's creation account. There's many more that we could list, but I think we'll have time to cover these seven because you'll notice the last three really relate to things we've already been talking about. I'd first like to speak about this one, an intelligently or intellectually compelling account of origins. Uh, the biblical account, and I actually, we could do a detailed presentation on this, but for the sake of time, I'm not doing it. The biblical account of creation, rather than uh, looking like a fable, is incredibly compelling, and I'll tell you from a physician standpoint. If you look at the creation stories of indigenous peoples of antiquity, you'll read all kinds of things that are simply not intellectually compelling. You might read about a Chinese creation story where the earth starts as a cosmic egg that hatches and the top of the egg becomes the heavens and the bottom becomes the earth and Pan Ku is in this egg and his body you know, ultimately becomes the earth. And The point is whether you read something like that or whether you read the other contemporary accounts of creation that took place, that were believed alongside of Moses and Israel, whether you read the Babylonian creation story and read about the, you know, the battle of, uh, of Marduk and slaying Tiamat, the flood dragon, and creating the earth out of it, or whether you look at Norwegian legends. Or, you go throughout the world, and there are usually fantastic stories about how we got here. And then you come to the creation account in Genesis, and you read things like, God spoke, and it was. And what's amazing about it, I'll just tell you, because, you know, the higher critics today, they want us to believe that Genesis, of course, wasn't even written by Moses. It was compiled by different people, and they took in different wisdom from surrounding nations. The Bible is countercultural. It's, it's against the cultural values that were prominent. Take, take some examples. In Genesis 1.29, you read about diet in the perfect world. What kind of diet does Genesis describe? That's right, a vegetarian diet. This was not the diet 
that was esteemed by the Middle Eastern cultures. If you, were, if you were really successful, whether you lived in Egypt or Babylonia or wherever, what did you have? You had animal products. Why did Daniel have to make a stand in Babylon? Because they weren't feeding him foods that were acceptable to one who was caring for his body temple according to God's principles. The Egyptians, fascinating. We have, we have so much insight into how the Egyptian culture, because of uh, archaeology and the uh, mummification and all of the focus the Egyptians had on afterlife. In fact, just a week ago, my wife and I were in an Egyptian museum looking again at some of these uh, artifacts. And uh, plenty of evidence for them living the good life with beer and animal products and rich foods. Then you go to Genesis 2. And in Genesis 2, here it's a perfect world. Any respectable Middle Easterner who would attain status, they would have someone else doing their manual labor, wouldn't they? That's right. That's what the Egyptians did. Well, in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve are given the job of dressing and keeping the garden. What I'm trying to share with you is if you look at the Genesis account, as I look at it as a physician, you know, here at Weimar we talk about New Start. The elements of that New Start program come from Genesis 1 and 2. All these things in the original creation account, instead of sounding fantastic, well, it may sound fantastic because no one today speaks and something happens. But it's eloquent in its simplicity, the Genesis account. So what I'd like to suggest to you that as I look at Genesis from the eyes of a physician, I see the elements that are there. I see God saying that this is a plan that was to be conducive with eternal life, with immortality, it is compelling to me what is in that creation account and what's not there that I don't find in any other creation story that I'm aware of throughout the world. Now, evolutionists today believe in a different way that the world came to be, and they call it the Big Bang Theory. And the real question is, is this an intellectually compelling story for how we came to be where we are. Well, what does the Big Bang theory really say? I mean, you can read the science textbooks, you can read the descriptions. It says there was this singularity, this, uh, this unique situation. And uh, what it was is uh, all of the matter in the universe could be on you know, a, a spot smaller than the tip of a pencil. Um, and in this fraction of a second, at the beginning of the Big Bang, the cosmos goes through a super fast inflation, expanding from the size of an atom to that of a grapefruit in a tiny fraction of a second. And then what happens? Well, then after this initial inflation, we're looking at fractions of a second. This is 1, this is 10 to the minus 32, that's, that's 10 with 32, 1 with 32 zeros after it and a 1 over it. It's a tiny fraction. It says post-inflation, 
The universe is a seething hot soup of electrons, quarks, and other particles. Fractions of a second later, a rapidly cooling cosmos permits quarks to clump into protons and neutrons. A few minutes later, still hot to form into atoms, charged electrons and protons prevent light from shining. The universe is a super hot fog. Where do things go from there? Well, now, now you're talking about, you know, now you've got to go 300,000 years for electrons to combine with protons and neutrons to form atoms, mostly hydrogen and helium. Light can finally shine. Then a billion years, gravity makes hydrogen gas and helium gas coalesce to form giant clouds that will become galaxies. Smaller clumps of gas collapse to form the first stars. And then 15 billion years, galaxies clustering together. You know, so you're reading all this stuff, and it's being taught as fact to kids everywhere in America and throughout the world. And the question really is, is this an intellectually compelling explanation? Think about it. In a great explosion with particles moving at incredible speeds, what's going to cause them to form into galaxies? How are things going to start clumping together and forming all these things? I mean, these are some different pictures, conceptual models of what's happening with the universe. And uh, the problem with all of this, you know, a lot of people would say, well, Dr. DeRose, you know, you're a physician. You're not a physicist. You know, you don't really even understand Einstein's theory of relativity. And if you did, this would all be obvious to you. And uh, let me just tell you something in life. If you haven't picked this up already, if someone tells you the explanation only real, real smart people can understand, and you just got to trust them, you should immediately be suspicious. <laughs> you remember what we, yeah, the emperor's clothes, someone says. You remember what we looked at yesterday in the first of my three presentations. Remember, who is it that in the Christian world are the ones causing the problems when it comes to the simple belief in the intellectually compelling account of creation? It's the ones who are so-called educated, the ones who think it's beneath them to accept God's account of creation. And so they come up with all these stories. But the amazing thing is, is the stories keep changing. Are you aware that no one today, no respectable science today, scientists today, believes in strictly Darwinian evolution. None of them. None of them. They talk about neo-Darwinism. You know, they've modified his theory because it doesn't work. Darwin's explanations don't hold. They don't fit with the evidence that we see. So they've had to redefine things. They've had to say, well, they, they have had to give other explanations and change Darwin's, you know, entire perspective. Now, you might say, well, it's still his framework that they're embracing and uh, the survival of tooth and claw, you know, survival of the fittest and all this. But the interesting thing about all this is what they teach is fact. Based on conjecture, they continue to change their prevailing model of how things happen. You know, there was a time not all that long ago when scientists believed that the universe had always existed. The Big Bang was not always the prevailing theory. And in fact, one physicist commenting on this and speaking about the Bible, where it speaks about a beginning of creation, uh, he had lived during an era where all the scientists were saying the universe had always existed. 
And he said, what's ironic, and I'm of course paraphrasing, is that we vehemently opposed the scientific community this idea that there was a creation to the universe, and now we're really saying the same thing, that there was once no universe, and then it was created. Now, then it, he wouldn't use the word created to the scientists, but it, it occurred through this big bang. Well, another question about all this, and this is one of the arguments that you often hear when you, if you read at all about creation science and how God's creation account in the book of Genesis is more logically compelling than many other accounts that have been put to the fore, in fact, than all others is the second law of thermodynamics. And many of you understand what this is. It's sometimes spoken of the law of entropy. And that is what we observe in natural systems as things go from order to disorder. Okay, that's typical things degrade over time. They go from order to disorder. They don't go from disorder to order. So the second law is this law of entropy. This is what happens. And uh, the, the evolutionists try to make all kinds of explanations about how you can go from disorder to order, but this is not what we observe in nature. We don't see things organizing into, uh, from disorder to order on a macro scale. And uh, here's one commenting on it. A final point to be made is that the second law of thermodynamics and the great principle of increase in entropy or disorder have great philosophical implications. The question that arises is how did the universe get into the state of reduced entropy order in the first place? Since all natural processes known to us tend to increase entropy. So how did the universe become more ordered? The author has found that the second law tends to increase his conviction that there's a creator who has the answer for the future destiny of man and the universe. This is actually an author writing in a textbook back in the 50s, thermodynamics textbook. Now this uh, probably wouldn't get published in a thermodynamics textbook today, but this is a scientist who's basically saying, you know, this just doesn't work. But nowadays, if you be, are too vocal in saying that this doesn't make sense, people are told it could affect their career in the sciences. I'm glad many of you were here to hear Dr. Jackson and uh, he did quite well in uh, the scientific community uh, adhering to the biblical account of creation. If the Lord wants you in that capacity, you can stand firm like Daniel. Was Daniel singular in Babylon in his beliefs? Yes. Was he conformed to the prevailing ideas around him so he would get ahead? Is that what he did? How did Daniel get ahead? That's right, he stood for what was true. And because God wanted Daniel in a position of influence, God elevated him. Now sometimes God allows you to be demoted to get you where he wants you to be. That happened to Joseph first before he got elevated, right? He got demoted to the pit by his brothers. Okay, so again, my main message as we speak about this Big Bang is just be very wary of any explanations that say you're just not smart enough to understand it. Uh, in 1998, two separate teams of observers, they uh, 
pretty much confirmed that the universe was expanding. Things weren't slowing down. Things weren't coalescing. And uh, how could this, how then could galaxies form? You see, because that was one way to explain it. Well, it started to expand, and now and then it started to collapse, and things started to, you know, clump together. Well, that's not happening. So now they have the concept of dark energy, okay, and dark matter, and all these things. And you know, it's just too difficult for us to understand. It may not make sense, but you just, you know, just believe it. There's scientists that teach it. What's amazing to me is when we have an intellectually compelling account, why would we want to abandon that? Do you see? It's not, it's not like you read the biblical account and you say it doesn't make sense, especially when you see the rest of Revelation. Let me just give you one other aside here that is really important from my perspective as far as creation science. Because I've been telling you that one of the things I hope people will catch a vision to do is do some public work with creation science. And some of you may feel frustrated that I've not told you as much about creation science as you wanted to hear. Um, I actually think that you've got a lot of more material on that CD. You can go through that. Got a lot of things you can use. But if we don't lay the philosophy down, um, just to tell you things that help you personally, that don't try to inspire you to do something with this, I will feel that I have uh, misrepresented and the opportunity that we have for us today. So here's what I want to tell you. If you are doing a creation science seminar, it can be fed nicely into an evangelistic series. If you open up your Bible to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is one of the books, we call Isaiah the gospel prophet. Isaiah uses three lines of evidence to show that God is the true God. One of them is he's the creator. You look in the heart of the book of Isaiah, you can, and we won't go through this in detail, I sometimes do, but we won't today. Because I told you we wouldn't do much philosophy, but I'm just giving you this uh, aside here. So God is the creator. And so when people come to a creation science seminar, we advertise it to people who want reasons for a biblical faith, especially if we're trying to lead up to an evangelistic series. And so people come out for that, and you say, look, if you're trying to help your friends to understand or use creation science as a means of pointing the true God, God never just uses creation as the sole evidence of who he is. And I, we can, you can show this in Psalms, you can show it in many places in the Bible, but Isaiah is especially clear on this. God says, there's none other like me because I'm the creator. He says, there's none other like me because I'm the redeemer. And he says, there's none other like me because I declare the end from the beginning. And so what you do then is you say, if you want to give a full presentation of the God of the Bible, it's not just defending creation to a non-believer, but it's showing it in the context of the God who speaks through prophecy and who reveals himself as the Savior. And you know what? Next week, we've got a series coming up. We're going to go through Bible prophecy from the standpoint of God being the Redeemer, the Savior, the one who wants to work in your life. And so you lead right in to an evangelistic series. So it's a powerful connection. You'll get people to come out who you wouldn't see any, for any other reason. They won't come out to a health meeting. You didn't meet them in your Bible study context. But these people will come. And as you talk about creation science, you can make that bridge. The Bible 
clearly says, God says, I am that I am. I am the self-existent. I am the eternal one. I am the creator. Okay, let's talk about creating life. You know, in spite of all that evolutionists have said about how, quote, easy it is for life to occur. You know, we understand exactly how it happened. These different elements were there and life came about. Is this intellectually compelling? I mean, think about it. They're expecting us to believe that these things happen by chance, when even if they control all the systems, they can't create life. You say, wait a minute, Dr. DeRose, you haven't been keeping up with the news because on May 21st, 2010, I read the headlines J. Craig Venter's team creates life. Did you realize that's how this was billed? $40 million project, 15 years of research, life was created. That's what the headline said. Time Magazine's article was uh, even perhaps more telling, scientist creates life. That's a good thing, right? What really happened? Well, if you read, you read beyond the headline, at least CNN reported it accurately, because they quoted Venter, and he said, we didn't create life from scratch. <laughs> but even more amazing was the Time article. I mean, it's amazing. Listen to this. This is how, and I'm just, to me, this illustrates the bias that we have in our culture. It's the, this is, Time, Time Magazine, you know, it's a so-called respectable news magazine. It's the ultimate science experiment, really, taking a handful of chemicals, mixing them in just the right combination, and presto life. And after nearly 15 years of such toiling in his labs in Rockville, Maryland, J. Craig Venter, co-mapper of the human genome, has done just that. Well, you don't need to read any further, right? Scientists have created life. They've done it. What this illustrates to me is the desperation of people with the evolutionary model. They realize that there is nothing that's created life, and they're willing to grab on anything. What did Venter really do? This is interesting. What they did is they, first of all, deciphered the genetic code of a relatively simple organism, a mycoplasma organism. So they decipher the genetic code. So they find out, they analyze the DNA. And if you believe in a creator, as I do, they analyze the uh, creator's blueprint for this organism to work. So they figure it out. And then they get all these pre-existing biomolecules, and they're going to put them together so that they will reproduce what God had already done. And they use pre-existing DNA as templates to put the new DNA sequence in the right order. So they're taking these chemicals. They didn't make the chemicals. They didn't spontaneously generate. And uh, it's amazing what they're doing. I mean, it is an amazing thing, but it's amazing what they did, the length that they went to. Then they take the machinery of yeast and E. coli, and they use that to help join these strands together, okay, to make these big pieces of DNA. And finally, they put the man-made, quote, man-made DNA bacteria into an otherwise fully functional living bacterial cell that already had the machinery to decode the DNA. And voila, it's now a mycoplasma, okay? They put it into a recipient cell, 
And now the new chromosome takes over and it produces new proteins. And so they've created life. But I mean, do you, do, I mean, do you catch the, the irony of this? You know, and, and so, yeah, and so it's like, here we've been teaching kids for years. I was taught it growing up, that we just evolved, that there was this, you know, primordial soup, these chemicals, and they just came together. And these guys, it took them 15 years with all, and, and using all living organisms, all kinds of high-tech stuff. And, you, and not, they didn't design it from scratch. They didn't say, you know, we're going to make a new organism. And we're going to have it, uh, you know, be able to come onto the land and then go into the sea or, you know. It's a simple organism that, that really with the highest technology that we have today, there's nothing chance about it. There's nothing even creating life about it. So the bottom line is the results have nothing to do with spontaneous creation of life. In fact, all they showed was that an, that an intelligent designer could assemble functional DNA, right? That's what they showed us. How many of you have heard of Dean Kenyon? Yeah, Dean Kenyon, amazing fellow. Um, Listen to his credentials. Professor Emeritus of Biology at San Francisco State University. PhD in Biophysics from Stanford. He was a, a research associate with NASA. He's been visiting scholar at Oxford. National Science Foundation Fellowship. I mean, this guy is a high-powered scientist. In fact, not only was he a high-powered scientist, he was once a leading evolutionist dealing with the origin of life. In fact, he wrote the book about the kind of stuff we're talking about. It was called Biochemical Predestination. So if you were going to go to, you know, your, get your PhD in um, biochemistry or something, and you would be studying biochemical predestination if you were taking a class on the biological origin of life, how things could just assemble. So he published papers on chemical evolution and, and uh, the RNA world is, uh, you know, how uh, genetics supposedly started, you know, before DNA, it was just RNA, the theories of the evolutionists as to how we got this complex system. And uh, what's really interesting is you may know some of these names, Operin, Fox, these were the, 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 the grandfathers of this so-called, you know, creating life from the chemical soup. And uh, so esteemed was Kenyon that he contributed chapters to their Festschrift uh, manuscripts. These, uh, you know, when someone retires from academia, they have a special celebration and papers are written in their honor. Well, Kenyon was he's, he's one of these leading evolutionists, saying that, you know, everything evolved from this primordial soup. But, you know, as time went on, Kenyon, and as he tells the story, it had to do with some of his inquisitive students, you know, got him really looking at these theories, and he ultimately came to realize there was no way that this could actually happen by chance. And he's actually now a creationist. Many people, there are many honest people in the halls of academia that are in conflict, and sometimes those conflicts are suppressed. You could visit with Dr. Jensen sometime. Uh, she was 
got graduate level degrees in the secular system before she became a Christian. And uh, she saw conflicts there. But you know, you just, you just have to accept the prevailing ideas. But a lot of these people, there's, there's disconnects in their brain. They can't piece things together. You know, there's a whole science in medicine about false memories. Have you heard about this? People can actually create false memories in people. And uh, there's different ways you can do it. But if, you're, if a false memory is implanted in you, you can believe something, but you can feel that it's somehow disconnected to what other things you remember or see. And so there's this, this conflict in your mind. And then if a greater source of truth comes, the conflict can be resolved, and you can realize that this was false. But you were, you were believing it. You were thinking it was true because everyone was telling you it was. And when you couldn't understand something, you said, no, this is the way it happened. Now, I'm not just actually speaking theoretically here, because many years ago, I was in a very serious car accident. And um, the, uh, the person that was charged with causing the accident was not me. Um, was driving very erratically, and I, had, and I was knocked unconscious in the accident and didn't have a real precise memory of what happened. And uh, of course, this went to trial because there are uh, people that were injured and things. And uh, I was told by the lawyers that were working with me that um, of how things happened, and they, you know, because you have to reconstruct how the accident occurred. And they said, you know, witnesses saw this and that. And I said, well, I guess that was that way. And, uh, but there's some disconnect in my mind. So I reconstructed in my mind, based on what things people were telling me to help, quote, refresh my memory of what happened. And uh, we're actually in trial. And I heard testimonies of people. Then it dawned on me that's what really happened. I was several lanes away from this guy. They were trying to tell me I was right next to him, and so I recreated this memory. And I was thinking, why was that so strange? Well, the guy drove across two lanes on the freeway and cut me off. And uh, so then it all became clear. But I had this false memory. I thought it was true because people kept telling me. They said, no, no, you were in the lane next to him, and this is what people saw. And, and such and such. Now, you might think that's kind of a strange illustration, but I believe this is what happens to many people in academia. They see things that seem contrary to their experience, but they haven't fully probed it. They don't have all the evidence. Someone says, this is the way it is, and this is the way it is. And so they accept these things like truth until finally something comes up, and they say, well, that's it. I mean, the layer, there's no erosion in the layers. Something it can be something very simple. You say, well, we really didn't talk about all that much. You know, you, you didn't really give us all that. You know, we could have talked about a whole lot more things in, in three hours of lecture that you had, Dr. DeRose. But I, I'm trying to help you see that really just being holding to integrity of the biblical account, putting in the context of God as creator and redeemer, the God of prophecy, all these things are different lines of evidence that would cause someone to say, you know what, I should look seriously at the Bible. And then science supporting that biblical account is powerful. And so Kenyon is a creationist, and he's written this creation textbook of pandas and people. So the bottom line is that Kenyon gives us an example of a world-class scientist who, in the course of his life work, he realized this futility of life arising out of nothing. 
let's look at another reason why I believe we can have confidence in creation. We're really starting to get into the argument from design that I promised we would, we'd talk about. Um, Tim Standish has a whole presentation on your CD on the language of life. And I'm just going to take about one minute to, uh, to tell you about this. Basically, he begins by saying there's ways scientifically we can decide whether something looks like it's created or designed or whether something just happened by chance. And if you look at the DNA and genetics in the cell, the evidence seems overwhelming that this is something that was designed that would not happen by chance. So you have all these slides. Many of you have studied genetics. If you have some basic uh, science, you've studied about DNA. And so all these various structures uh, in DNA, what's so interesting about it is this very specific language, this language of life, if you will, is uh, simply put, it's a chemical code that tells the body, as the body interprets it, how to construct proteins based on these molecules of DNA that contain information. It tells the body how to make the proteins that we need for life. And so what's so amazing about it is, as you uh, learn about DNA, and some of, like I said, either, either you've, you've studied this or you haven't, but the point is that um, if this were to just happen by chance, we would expect to see something very different, Dr. Standish suggests, than we do see. Um, these codons, these units of uh, message, like these words, in the uh, genetic language are basically what tells the body how it tells it to assemble the different protein building blocks, the amino acids. And if you look here, this is a, is a graph, and I'll just point out what this is. There's three elements, three bases to each codon. It tells which amino acid will be put in a sequence to make a protein. And what this is just showing you is it seems that this is designed so that if you make a mistake in one of these bases, if there's a mutation, in all likelihood, this code seems designed to minimize the impact of mutations. You see, although evolution tries to tell us that mutations are, are good and they're necessary for all this development of life on Earth, the fact is that most mutations, with very few exceptions, are bad. And so the genetic code is designed so that if, if you have a change in this third base pair from uracil to one of the other bases, it will not make any difference in what amino acid is being coded for. You see? That's what this is showing here. And you see this in many of these boxes. You can have significant changes total change in one of the three or even uh, sometimes the second base even, and it still preserves the meaning. So what Standish says is this does not look like something that just happened by chance. And you can look through his, he, his whole presentation. But he says the genetic code is improbable. It doesn't look random. And in fact, um, you know, he speaks about this uh, life arising from, uh, from sludge, from this primordial sludge. Why are there just 20 amino acids that are used? 
You know, if all these amino acids are being created, why are just 20 used? Um, this is amazing, really, when you think about it. And then he looks at the statistics uh, behind it, and he comes up with a figure uh, of 2.4 times 10 to the minus 85. One chance in, you know, two with 85 zeros after it. So even if you give more generous statistics, uh, the probability is still huge numbers. This does not look like something that just happened by chance. So for a lot of people, if they know genetics and they look at some of this, they say, that's pretty compelling. Other people without much genetic background says, I don't get it. So let's look at some broader structures that illustrate this irreducible complexity concept. And Behe was the fellow that coined this term. Michael Behe, if you don't know his background or haven't read his book, he is not a biblical creationist. In fact, he, um, and I don't, I won't take the time to actually read some statements from him, but he basically, he's completely comfortable with things evolving over, you know, millions or billions of years, but he says there's no way that can explain life and the complexity in life. Do you realize that many Christians today who take this view of the Bible that uh, the days of creation represent e eons and eons of time, they say, well, you know what, this is, it's obvious that things couldn't just have evolved. In fact, the guy who was the head of the Human Genome product, uh, Project, um, Francis, Francis Collins, that doesn't sound right. Is that his name, Francis Collins? Not Crick, yeah, Watson and Crick were DNA. Um, yeah, Francis Collins, that's who it is. Francis Collins, he's a, 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 a Christian, and basically his argument is it's, it's totally impossible for all this just to have evolved, but I have no problem with things happening over millions and millions of years. I just know that a creator had to guide in the process. This is a very common view in Christian circles today, and so Behe is in this camp. He's basically saying, you know, I have no problem, and I don't know that he claims to be a Christian, I think he may, but, uh, but, but Behe is not believing in a recent creation. But he's a, a biochemist who basically has looked at life, and he says there's no way it could evolve. Here's a statement. The simplicity that was once expected to be the foundation of life has proven to be a phantom. Instead, systems of horrendous, irreducible complexity inhabit the cell. So this didn't start with simple life that's like, like nothing. There's these complex things in simple unicellular organisms. And B says there's no way this could just have evolved. What he says is the resulting realization that life was designed by an intelligence is a shock to us in the 20th century who had gotten used to thinking of life as the result of simple natural laws. And his basic argument in this book is that irreducible complexity is, the, is part and parcel of all of life. Uh, he quotes uh, Darwin, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. And uh, Behe basically uh, points out that his theory has absolutely broken down because to Darwin, the cell was a black box, inner workings mysterious, now the black box has been opened, we know how it works. 
applying Darwin's test to the ultra-complex world of molecular machinery and cellular systems that have been discovered over the past 40 years, we can say Darwin's theory has absolutely broken down. And why is he saying this? Behe uh, uses this term, irreducible complexity, and he describes it this way. It's a single system which is composed of several well-matched interacting parts that contribute to the basic function and where the removal of any one of the parts causes the system to effectively cease functioning. He uses an illustration, and this is actually a diagram from his book, of a mousetrap. And what he says is, he looks at different systems in the body, the clotting system, he looks at the cilia, the flagellum and bacteria and different things. And he says, there are so many complex systems, even in single cells, that uh, it's like a mousetrap. How could a mousetrap evolve? This is base, basically the, the, the gist, I mean, just conceptually. Because a mousetrap is not functional it would not be preserved in the evolutionary mechanism. See, evolution says that there's these little mutations, these changes, and these gradual changes are preserved because they provide a survival, or more precisely, a reproductive advantage. So that this organism now is better able to survive in its, uh, in its niche. So B is saying, well, what good does a partial clotting system do you? What good does a partial flagellum do? And we could even talk about you know, larger structures too. I mean, what good do these things do? They are irreducibly complex, not just at the level of a fin or a wing. We're talking about at the biochemical level. He's a biochemist. And he says, there's nothing that's going to preserve a spring until you have the whole mousetrap made. It would be a disadvantage for the creature to be making something that had no functional use. And so, like I said, he uses a number of examples of these interrelated systems and processes, some of them at a single cellular level. And one that's uh, particularly amazing that, uh, that Behe talks about is the flagellum, the bacterial flagellum. Um, if you look at this structure, it basically looks like a complicated motor. Um, with a drive shaft and a rotor and, uh, you know, the bushings and the hook, the universal joint and a propeller. Incredibly complex, the flagellum. But this isn't a simple organism, you see? And basically what he's saying is, I, it's okay if the scientists, you know, they want to tell me it's, you know, millions and billions of years, I and mean, that's okay. But no one can get me to believe that this just happened by chance. And what I'm just saying is those who make that argument, we should ask them, well, why then? If you know that there had to be an intelligent designer and there's a book that is claimed to be from the intelligent designer that provides an intellectually compelling account of origins, why would you not accept that account? So uh, there's more illustrations in the CD of this whole concept of intelligent design and irreducible complexity. But really, whether we look at these biochemical systems or gross anatomy or how did gender develop or whether we look at geology, I think there's some compelling reasons to have confidence in the Genesis creation account. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you 
that you have not asked us to just blindly trust you. Yes, you want our allegiance, yet you, yes, you want us to trust you even when we can't connect all the dots. But you're so gracious in that you have allowed a great flood of light to shine on our feet through the Bible, through the spirit of prophecy, and yes, through the second book of nature, even as it's illuminated by modern science rightly understood. Father, please help us to realize the opportunity we have in this time to give a certain sound to that three angels message, to embrace the work of Elijah as a people, and to prepare for the coming of the Lord. We thank you for that privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you want some time for interaction, questions and answers for these sections, both Dr. Jackson and mine will be meeting here at 2.30, from 2.30 to 3.30 this afternoon. In this room. The rest? That's what we looked at in the previous hour. Yeah, yeah. We down in. Oh, we do. Okay, we've got some more time here. Okay, yeah, we can talk some more about these things then. Well, I'm glad you folks are more oriented than me. Some of you were excited to be out early, and others of you want the bonus section. So we'll we'll move into the bonus section here. Um, I was wondering why Joy Joy just you know, usually gives me this five-minute card, and I said, well, I guess she just felt I was so well-oriented to the time that she didn't need to show it to me anymore. But, uh, yeah, let's take a little bit of time and speak about uh, the gross anatomical structures. And uh, I actually have, like, an hour presentation on this, and maybe uh, uh, I'm trying to think whether it's better to try to go through quickly through some PowerPoint or just to talk with you about it. Let's, um, Are there illustrations before? Yeah, there's illustrations. Some of you might like to see that, huh? Uh, okay, let, let, me just, let me just tell you about this, because I think most of you have at least some basic background in, in this. And if I'm, if I'm uh, getting too far afield, you can, can rein me in and we'll, we'll pull up some PowerPoint slides, because I didn't actually put them in here. Behe talked about irreducible complexity from the standpoint of biochemistry. And I'm, I'm saying the same concept applies to gross anatomical structures. And you look at a lot of the things like the four-chambered heart and the valves in the heart and circulatory flow, and you ask the question, what kind of reasonable mechanism could there be for how this could simply evolve over time? Now, you know what the evolutionists like to say? There was a, a very catchy phrase that they used to use, and that was that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. It simply meant that if you look at how an organism develops, then you can go back in time and uh, see what it looked like early in life. And so if you look at a human fetus, they said it looks more like some kind of, you know, pro, uh, you know simple life form and, uh, and on and on. 
the problem with that is you really don't have functional structures in the fetus. You don't have uh, gills that are really functioning, uh, that are turning into lungs or anything of the sort. And uh, as you look at what happens in development, and as you then look at what happens at birth, this is incredibly amazing. Because there is a whole complex system that is designed to allow the fetus to survive in the womb in an atmosphere where it is not breathing oxygen. There's actually openings in the heart and connections in the, uh, the arteries. There's something called the ductus arteriosus uh, that connects the pulmonary artery and the aorta. There's uh, openings in the chambers of the heart that allow different blood flow in the fetus. And then when that baby is born and it takes its first breath, these structures close off. And then it starts to breathe oxygen. I mean, a matter of, of you know, moments. And so you look at things like that and you say, this seems to indicate design. Today, we spend billions of dollars on heart valve surgeries, whether it's in infants that are born with defective valves or as we get older, if we end up with valve problems. Why do we do that? Why do we fix valves? Yeah, val bad valve problems are incompatible with life. Have you ever looked at the structure of a valve? A, a valve is kind of almost like a parachute. It's got these fine corded tendinae that are like the, uh, the, the, the fine strings on the parachute. And the valve is this very intricate structure, this very delicate structure. And it's, it's attached to papillary muscles, uh, the, the larger valves like the mitral valve between the left uh, chambers of the heart, the atria and the ventricle. And so you have this exquisite design in the valvular structure. Well, how, do, I mean, how does something like this just evolve sequentially? Do you see the problem? And so what the whole argument from design is is that we look at these structures, whether it's biochemically or whether it's on the level of gross anatomy, and you say, well, how can these just evolve? What's even more amazing is when you look at integration. And so the baroreceptors are pressure receptors that you have, for example, in your carotid artery. Those are monitoring your pressure. And if those baroreceptors are overly stimulated, it will send a message through the brain and to the heart to slow the heart down and to decrease the pressure, if you will. So if someone's having a, a, a rapid heart rhythm, we might try to take advantage of that reflex and try to stimulate the carotid barrel receptors with our, our fingers. Um, you don't want to do that if someone might have blockage in those arteries that you could dislodge, theoretically. But, so you stimulate that baroreceptor and the heart rate slows. Well, how, do you, how does something like that evolve? You see, something that has a complex interconnectedness. You have an enteric nervous system. The brain is connected with your intestines. Um, there's all of these interconnections in the body. And so how did they happen? It's, I mean, it's really a problem when you look at how exquisitely designed the human body is, or any other even, quote, simple creature. So especially when you look at 
go beyond the biochemical and the, the single-celled organisms and start looking at things with complex organ systems, even something that we would say is fairly straightforward, like the circulatory system, is extremely complex and integrated, and that integration speaks of design. It speaks of someone behind that process actually orchestrating the, uh, the events. So uh, with that, I, I wanted to conclude the, uh, the topic of design in the circulatory system. But uh, we could have, co of course, spoken much more about all these things. Since we have Dr. Jensen here, um, and we've got about uh, five more minutes, if there is something that, uh, Karen, you, you might have just some comments about what we've been talking about, some things that. I wanted to hear what you had to say about gender. Okay. You want to, she said she wants me to, to, she wants to hear what I had to say about gender. Okay. Well, I'll tell you about what I have to say about gender. It's not, uh, it's not all that profound, I think. It's just amazing to me. Because if you look at gender, how do you come up with an evolutionary mechanism to create gender? Now you can say, well, the evolutionists have theories you know, as to how this may have occurred. But um, here's, here's another aspect to all of these things that are complex. And gender, see, involves more than one creature, right? In order to have gender, it implies you have at least two. And so what you, like in an evolutionary model, they may say, well, you know, something evolved into a hermaphrodite. So it had both genders. And, uh, and then ultimately over time, it evolved just to have one gender or the other. Well, I mean, you know, how do you, it, yeah, it kind of, when you actually think about some of the logic behind that, it's, it's, I think it's a stretch, okay? I think it's a stretch, but, but having said that, when you start looking at multiple organisms that have changes, and by the way, this applies to the circulatory system or anything else, how many different circulatory variants are there, different ways the circulation works in human beings? For example, like if someone got their medical training in America, and they were go going to practice in China, would they have to study the Chinese anatomy and physiology, or could they get by with the American? What do you think? It's all the same. And, and see, what's, what's interesting about all this is uh, most evolutionists do not want to say that there was a, a single, you know, that there was an Adam and, and Eve. You see? So uh, what do you have? You have one population of apes that slowly evolved all in the same way. And you say, well, apes are pretty similar. They're circulatory systems. But then when you go back, well, what was before the apes? Do you, do you see what, what, the, what all this argues, whether it's gender or other things? And I, again, I don't have this illustration here. I think it's actually in your uh, material. But we look at some of these trees these uh, phylogenetic trees, we call them. And what's interesting is you look at s these lines of descent, supposedly. What you see is you see only things at the branches or at the leaves. And you don't see the common ancestors. 
So when, when you say, well, this had some, and they draw some picture or they put question marks, that these things both evolved from the same thing, but we don't know what it was. What the point I'm trying to make is, when you look at any race or any order of creation, it seems to be a distinct entity that was designed to whether it's gender, whether it's certain structural components, and there's not, um, it, it much, is much better explained by our original creation and either degradation or some adapt, adaptive changes that the Lord has programmed into uh, creation than something that evolved to higher and higher life forms. So to me, that's what the evidence suggests better. Instead of trying to cr connect all these things and say, well, there was something, this hermaphroditic predecessor that, that then evolved into male and female. Well, why would that happen? Why would that be an advantage? It would be, you think it would be better, right? To have, you know, because if you end up with 20 males and one female, you're in trouble. Yeah, exactly. You say, well, the, the, the point is that, well, that doesn't seem to go along with evolution, but the evolution, because it's more complex and it's not necessary for survival, but uh, the, the flip side will be, well, it ensures more genetic variation. And uh, this is an evolutionary advantage. Just one aside, I was listening to a uh, evolutionary uh, physician speaking about uh, anatomy and physiology a while back. And it was amazing to me the language he was using to describe evolution. He kept saying things like the wisdom of evolution. You know, and, and really, he was just being an honest observer of what he was seeing. But the problem is evolution has no wisdom. You see, it's supposed to be blind chance. And what he was really saying is he was marveling at the design and creation. And <laughs> evolution is mindless. So the problem is we want to attribute our, our, our human reason says design, 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 but we've been told we have to believe in evolution. Well, we'll have time for some more questions and answers in our uh, afternoon session. Thank you for uh, getting me to stay by a little bit longer. If uh, that didn't answer all your questions about what I thought about gender, you can maybe ask uh, Dr. Jensen or uh, Dr. Jackson at 2.30. Okay, have a good afternoon and we'll look forward to seeing some of you back.